This is the Ingenuity Podcast. My name is Alistair Orchard and welcome to what I guess is the second pilot of the podcast. I mean, it's been far too long since the first pilot to consider this a second genuine episode. I have a new microphone, so we're still trying out the format. Now, over the last few months, as my fellow digital evangelists and I have been touring the world, speaking at events, speaking to executives about digitalization, about the future of work, I guess we've noticed a shift in perception from those groups. It used to be that concepts like generative design, uh, simulation, digitalization in general, these would elicit blank stares and require considerable introduction. Now there's a slightly different reaction. It's it's one almost of, of fatigue. These, these terms seem to have been bandied around so much, taken out of context, they seem to have lost a degree of their shine. You start talking to audiences about what you hope will be uh, justifiably considered outrageously interesting. Their eyes glaze over to a certain extent, and I don't think it's because those terms are beyond them. I think it's because they're in- instantly dismissed. Our attention spans are so short, we've already somehow heard them and dismissed them without ever really understanding how profound those technologies are and what advantages can be gained by applying them correctly. So what I have to do is I usually have to kind of shock the audience into attention by showing a video. And the one I choose to show uh, has no special effects, has no music, it's very simple. And it demonstrates a technique called generative design. The idea is that, you know, since the dawn of time, man has used tools to get things done. And the ultimate expression of that tool for many is the mouse. So when I use computers to aid and enhance design, what I'm actually doing is providing support for a human to push a mouse around the screen. And that paradigm is dead and buried. And the assassin is the generative design algorithm. Basically, computers have become so powerful that I can simply provide them the goals and constraints of the system that I'm trying to model in, and then I unleash the computer to design the part or the system that I want by itself. The very simple video I show is the design of a part of a gas turbine. It's the the nozzle of a gas turbine where the gas and air mixture is ignited. It's an important part, obviously. Um, from a performance perspective, there are really two forces at work. The first is pressure drop, which we want to minimize. The second is flow rate, which we want to maximize. And these are two goals that I place on the system. And then, of course, this nozzle has to fit within a certain three-dimensional geometry. And so that's a space I give it as a constraint. I also want to use as little material as possible. Actually, on a gas turbine, weight isn't incredibly important. We'll see later that um, in other systems that becomes a very important goal. But here, I'm really looking for performance more than anything else. So I provide it with these two actually conflicting goals, and I unleash the algorithm, which essentially 
iterate through designs in a Darwinian process of trial and error. And it really is um, the, the survival of the fittest because each generation of design is tested in terms of goals and constraints. So does it still fit inside the three-dimensional space, inside the gas turbine, yes or no? It's a pretty easy one. In this case, um, have I improved the trade-off between pressure drop and throughput? And if the answer is yes, then I've taken a step forward. And of course, that entire process can happen very quickly, especially when I harness the power of cloud computers, cloud computing. I've almost unlimited resources at uh, my disposal. And so very quickly, the tools will iterate through these designs, converge on a best design, which again is usually a trade-off between multiple factors. And watching that happen uh, in something close to real time is truly astonishing. It, it literally blows your mind. And there's a kind of shocked silence from, from the audience when they realize, hold on a minute, this is an entirely different world that we're entering here. You see a, that veil lifting, that degree of skepticism evaporating, and suddenly they're far more open to any further discussions about the technology. Now that process of enlightenment and the, and the importance of having your perspectives changed actually brings me back to the time that I first came to Italy about 20 years ago. Now I'd been, it sounds kind of strange, but I'd been fascinated by the phenomenon of, of breath holding ever since I was a kid. I swam an awful lot, thanks mum. And we went to a number of swimming pools around the area. And there was one in particular where we would see over many years, this, we would see this woman, she, I don't know how many children she, she had while we, were, while we were kids, but she always seemed to have a new one. And she would bring these tiny little babies into the swimming pool. And whilst the four or five-year-olds were trying to learn to swim and they you know, had, held their heads stiffly above the water, were gulping in water and choking. She would stride. This was a 33, this is a 100 foot long pool. So I don't know how wide they are. What are they? 25 foot wide. That's a 33 meter pool. So maybe eight to 10 meters wide. She would stride from side to side in this pool, doing widths, holding her child underwater. And I mean, we were utterly shocked by this. This was pre- Nirvana smells like teen spirit. So we'd not seen the album cover. We'd not seen a small baby underwater, eyes open, peaceful expression on its face before. But of course, we're aquatic mammals. And when we're placed underwater as a small baby, we're essentially going back into the womb. We're unlocking all kinds of ancient mechanisms inside of us. And so that small child just relaxes, holds its breath, seemingly for you know, an impossible length of time, as the mother walked across the, the pool. And we would try to replicate this. Obviously, we could do a, a width. We also went swimming in a 25-meter pool. We could just about do a length. Um, my father bought me a little Casio digital watch. I don't know how old I was, eight or nine. They were the first digital watches, you know, black plastic case, waterproof to 50 meters. I loved that watch. I, I never took it off. And of course, I timed everything. And one of the things I timed was my ability to hold my breath. And the beginning, you can maybe do 30 seconds before you get that burning feeling. As time goes on, you can push it to a minute. I probably made close to two minutes uh, after many, many attempts. But clearly, there's a limit there. Um, even as an adult, 
when maybe you can learn to push your body further, you can learn to withstand pain. There's a clear limit around the two minute mark where your body is just screaming for oxygen and you have to be a lunatic to attempt to go past it. But actually in the mid 90s, I was maybe still at university or just after university. I saw a film called um, The Big Blue, Le Grand Bleu. It's a film by Luc Besson, famous French uh, movie director. He directed the film Léon, if you've ever seen that. So a brilliant uh, director. And, and he was directing this film about free diving. And in particular, it was about the battle between two incredible free divers, historic free divers, um, Mayol, Jacques Mayol, and Mallorca. Enzo Mallorca. And one French, one Italian. Two characters, incidentally, with very different philosophies and approaches. Jacques Mayol, um, a person, a character, a diver who was all about relaxation, was all about feeling at one with the ocean, and his approach was extremely zen. In fact, he wrote a wonderful book, I have it around here somewhere, called um, Uomo Delfinus. And it's, it harks back, uh, it alludes to the fact that we, were, we shared a common an- ancestry with, with dolphins. We are essentially aquatic mammals. The other character, Enzo Mallorca, was a very brash Sicilian, I believe. Strong, powerful, forceful character, and physically as well. And his approach to free diving was uh, man versus the ocean. So it set up, these two characters were really a perfect uh, battle, also in the media at the time, and kind of immortalized in this wonderful film. Now the film certainly romanticizes their, their battle, but it was very cinemagraphic at even at the time, with these two characters. And at the beginning, they were diving, so without oxygen, in the Mediterranean Sea, 20 meters, 25 meters, 30 meters. And they were using a technique called no limits, which is basically you drop a cable down from a boat, you weight that with heavy weight to the bottom so it remains perpendicular, and you attach a sled to the, to the cables. It's a sled that can go up and down the cable. It is also heavily weighted. You hold onto the sled, you release the sled, it basically pulls you down with a force of gravity. And when you get to the bottom, you inflate a balloon, which carries you straight up to the surface. And it's called no limits. It's the most extreme form of free diving. Now, as the pair reached 35, 40, 45 meters, there was a kind of media frenzy around the entire battle. A lot of doctors at the time weighed in with their opinion that. Um, the human body could not withstand depths of beyond 50 meters. And the reasoning was quite simple. Um, At the surface, when you take a deep breath, your lungs are inflated to something like the size of a melon, each one. And as you go down, the water pressure squishes the, the air in your lungs. So each one ends up about the size of an orange. And um, the doctors at the time quite reasonably presumed that this would create a vacuum in your in the space in your chest cavity that you could withstand up to about 50 meters after which your chest would collapse and so they predicted death instantaneous catastrophic death uh, beyond the 50 meter mark which of course created fantastic newsworthy footage both at the time and also in the film anyway of course these guys i think it was probably mallorca who said well my chest isn't gonna collapse i can beat the ocean they went to 50 to 60, to 70, to 80. Uh, I'm pretty sure Jacques Mayol hit 100 meters in no limits diving 
finally proving, of course, not only that the doctors were wrong, but proving that our body is far more adaptable than you could ever possibly imagine. More on that later. But the, the film was fascinating to me because it, it opened this entire world. It was, it was indicating either that these two were superhuman or that there was something going on that maybe I could tap into uh, in order to realize my long-held wish to be able to hold my breath for more than two minutes. Anyway, I think I explained in the first podcast, I ended up in Italy for one reason or another, actually in a place called Genoa, near Portofino, where um, a lot of the films, the film is based, where both characters set and broke each other's records. And this seemed like an amazing opportunity to me. I'd never put my face into blue water before. If you've ever <laughs> been swimming around the coast in the UK, it's pretty ropey. Pea green, pea, pea green soup is a, a good analogy. So when you actually dive into clear Mediterranean waters, it's quite shocking. First of all, the color and the transparency, the visibility. There's very often 20, 30 meters of visibility. You have the, the sun, the sunlight knifing through the water. Um, these incredible fingers of light reaching down into the depths very invitingly. And then, of course, the sea life is also incredible. It's very normal for, well, first of all, it's normal to see lots of tropical type fish, but also dolphins, moonfish, many other strange creatures. So, so to cut a long story short, I ended up in Italy. I, I sought out a freediving course and, and met a guy called Paolo Canti, and he's a freediving instructor running a school in Genoa, a school for the Apnea Academy, which is a, a large organization run by a guy called Umberto Pellizzari, who's an incredible freediving champion, Italian guy. By the way, another film you should go and watch is called Ocean Men. It stars Pellizzari and his Cuban nemesis. It kind of, it's, a, it's almost a remake of Le Grand Bleu. Um, it's a more contemporary, contemporary interpretation of this kind of battle. In this case, the two guys trying to break a world record. Anyway, I started the freediving course and immediately fell in love with the sport because everything I'd hoped was true. Uh, it is actually possible to break way through that two-minute barrier. And at least for me, in order to do that, you need to understand some of the basics of what's going on when you hold your breath. I want to take you through that. Now, the first and fundamental thing that you need to do when you initiate a breath hold is what's called the breathe up. This is the preparation period in the couple of minutes before holding your breath. And here it's all about the breathing. Um, it seems strange that the breathing is important when you're focusing on holding your breath, but it's important for a couple of reasons. Do it right and you will um, prolong that breath hold quite remarkably. Do it wrong and it's extremely dangerous. Now, wrong in this case is, well, there are several ways of doing it wrong. The most important uh, way is called hyperventilation. That's over-breathing, the process of <laughs> chugging on air. It's a very popular technique, and the reason that it's popular is that it makes the breath hold easier. Unfortunately, it kills you, and more on that later. The right way of breathing up is very long, very relaxed, slow breaths. Um, the breath in should be done in two sections. First, distending your belly, and you do that by bringing down the diaphragm, filling your lower torso with air, and then a second half of the breath, 
filling the upper part of your chest. And this deliberate two-stage process is important because when we normally breathe, we're only doing that upper superficial part. So by consciously filling the lower part of your torso, you're putting much more oxygen into your lungs. You then would hold that breath for maybe five seconds and then a very long, slow exhale over maybe 10 or 20 seconds. A couple of seconds pause with empty lungs and then start again. Now, literally, the longer you do this, the better. In preparation for competitive breath holds, that process might take half an hour, but even a couple of minutes is going to have an incredibly positive effect. Um, on one side, it is oxygenating your body. We'll talk about that in a minute as well. Actually, the main thing is, is it's preparing you mentally, it's calming you down, and it's saying to your body, look, I don't actually need oxygen. It's starting to switch on a whole series of mechanisms in your body, which I call the mammalian diving reflex. The most important of those is just relaxation. When, when we're moving quickly, we're, we're using oxygen. But when our muscles are tense, they're also using oxygen. When our heart is beating quickly, it's using oxygen. So this breathe up and the first mechanism that's triggered is one of extreme relaxation. You tend to mix that breathe up with uh, some kind of mental imaging. My favorite is sitting on the top of a mountain. I can hear the stream. I can visualize a stream running by my feet. I can hear it. I can visualize a tree with the leaves uh, moving in the wind. I can feel the sun on my face. And with every breath out, I'm breathing out gray color. And with every breath in, I'm breathing in a red color. And I'm filling my body with color. It's energy, it's calmness, and at the end of this process, I'm completely relaxed and I'm ready for the breath hold. Now, this mammalian diving reflex that I mentioned is, in, is really incredible. If you're a trained free diver and you begin this breathe up, then it will initiate or trigger this reflex. But for most people, you need an additional helping hand, and that actually comes in the form of splashing water on your face. Um, or immersing your face in cold water, which is not difficult if you're actually diving. It's more difficult if you're doing a, a dry breath hold, maybe lying on your bed. But there are nerve endings in your face around your eyes, which actually trigger the rest of this reflex, starting with what's called a blood shunt or a blood shift. And this is where the tiny capillaries in the end of your fingers and toes start to close out. They shut down, squeezing blood towards the veins in your hands and your feet, which close down and shunt and shift the blood towards the main arteries in your body, which close down, essentially switching off blood supply to your legs, to your arms, and pushing blood up into your torso. And there are two reasons for that. The first is in order to concentrate the available blood supply to your brain. You do not want to waste oxygen on your legs when it's in short supply. So your body automatically moves blood into the vital organs, including your brain. The second reason is that, remember, as you go down and your lungs compress, you're creating a, a, a void, a vacuum in your chest. And actually, that blood separates. And your lung cavity, your chest cavity, fills with plasma. And again, that's automatic. That's why my and my old's chests did not collapse. Their bodies, the same one, um, same mechanisms that dolphins have, fills with plasma 
Um, by the way, as you come back up to the surface, that is reabsorbed into the blood supply. So fascinating. Why plasma and not blood? Well, because the red blood cells are incredibly important for carrying the oxygen around your body into the brain. So they remain in the main blood supply. The next incredible mechanism is actually coming from your spleen. So because red blood cells carrying oxygen are very, very important, there's a kind of reservoir of those in your spleen. And as you begin your breath hold and your body recognizes that you're now in a state of apnea, it will release that reservoir of red blood cells from your spleen, flooding your body with additional oxygen carrying capabilities. Your body will then initiate a slowdown of your heart rate. And this is something that you've kicked off during that breathe up. And it's something that you need to consciously work on to a degree. I mean, it's an automatic mechanism, but it's not going to happen if you're panicking. And so all of these require that same calm you managed to achieve during the breathe up, maybe visualizing this little scene sitting on the mountaintop. You manage to maintain that during the breath hold period because it will allow your body to continue to relax and your heart rate will continue to slow down. Actually, maybe if you have a resting heart rate of something like 80, um, you're going to be, your heart rate's going to be depressed considerably, maybe down to 50, down to 40. And if you're actually diving underwater with a pressure, then that continues to fall. And freediving champions at the bottom of their dive curve, they're going to be, their hearts are going to be beating about once every nine or 10 seconds. So something like six to eight beats a minute, which is utterly incredible. And again, helped by relaxation, but an automatic mechanism built into our uh, physiology. So we begin our breath hold. At the beginning, it's pretty easy. Feel good. Our lungs are full. Very soon we get uncomfortable. Um, our lungs start to burn. You know the sensation. By the way, if we continue to try to push through that sensation, then our diaphragms will involuntarily begin to spasm, trying to force us to, to breathe. This, of course, is very scary, especially if it happens underwater, which it will if you're doing any kind of freediving. The important thing to understand, though, is that this is not an indication of a lack of oxygen. Our bodies do not contain any oxygen sensors at all. They are unable and incapable of understanding oxygen levels. The only indication of oxygen depletion is a narrowing of the visual field. Actually, if you ever play a video game and you start to black out on that video game, then your visual field will kind of narrow and it's called blacking out because um, your vision will slowly go black. And then, of course, actual blackout. And um, no one wants to rely on those indicators. They happen pretty quickly, by the way. Uh, and, and so the body's relying on an indirect indicator of oxygen, which is actually the level of CO2 in your, in your bloodstream. We have, an, we have a sensor in our neck, which can measure CO2 levels. And it infers from a rising CO2 that we have a falling oxygen, which is true, by the way, but these are not typically proportional. I can actually withstand a buildup of CO2. And if my uh, freediving technique is good, then I can, I can perceive an increase in CO2 levels. That does not mean that I've run out of oxygen. We actually have a CO2 sensor in our neck which is able to measure carbon dioxide levels. And we actually infer oxygen levels from indirectly from the level of CO2. The body basically says, look, as CO2 builds up, 
probably oxygen is, is falling. Breathe, breathe, breathe. And what you learn when you begin to free dive is that you can actually withstand very, very high levels of CO2. And it does not mean that you've run out of oxygen. You can continue to push way through that pain barrier and your body still has plenty of oxygen as long as you're relaxed and as long as these mechanisms kick in. And the only problem is that it hurts like buggery. So that burning sensation is not pleasant. That um, diaphragm spasm is not pleasant. Not only is it not pleasant, but it, it makes you tense, which is exactly the opposite of what you need. And so a lot of the freediving training is related to being able to operate under conditions of relatively low oxygen, but mainly high carbon dioxide, and to be able to continue to relax even as your body is screaming, um, breathe, breathe, breathe. Now, the, I think the most amazing mechanism is, mechanism is actually what happens next. And that is related to the body's ability to scavenge additional oxygen from the muscles in our bodies. When we hold our breath for long periods of time, the majority of the oxygen that we use is not actually stored in our lungs. We run out of that relatively quickly. Where most of the oxygen of a freediving champion comes from during a breath hold is actually from the myoglobin uh, in our muscles. And that myoglobin has um, oxygen molecules essentially attached to it. And they're there ready to, I think, be metabolized into ATP for um, physical exercise. But we can go and grab that oxygen. We're not going to need it for physical exercise. We're trying to hold our breath. We can grab it and use that. Um, to keep us alive during a long breath hold. And actually, the, the proportion of oxygen in our breath hold coming from myoglobin is, a, is actually huge. It's more than half of the oxygen that we're going to need. So how do we get our bodies to scavenge that oxygen? Well, actually, it happens again automatically due to a change in pH of our blood. So the myoglobin in our muscles are forced to release oxygen as the pH conditions of our blood become more acidic. And that happens because of the buildup of carbon dioxide. So if you dissolve carbon dioxide in, in, in water and blood, it will actually lower the pH of that liquid. And so as, as we hold our breaths, as our body starts building up carbon dioxide, as, our, as the sensor in our neck starts screaming out, hey, breathe, 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 what's actually happening is that our blood pH is lowering and it, this is flushing oxygen out from all of our muscles. Oxygen that we would normally need for exercise, but in this case, we're going to use for breathing. We're going to use to keep our brains ticking over. Now, it's at this point where the whole question of hyperventilation comes back in. If you remember at the beginning, I told you that hyperventilating made things feel easier, but you'd eventually die. And the reason for that is related exactly to this mechanism. Because when I hyperventilate, I actually do nothing to increase the amount of oxygen that I have. What I'm doing is I'm depleting the amount of carbon dioxide in my, um, dissolved in my blood, in my bloodstream. Now, the result of that is, number one, as I begin my breath hold, the level from which the carbon dioxide begins to climb is much lower. So the sensor in my neck doesn't start to complain until much, much later. And this makes the whole breath hold easier, okay? So people who hyperventilate report a very easy breath holding session. There's no sensation of burning. The diaphragm uh, uh, doesn't, spasms don't kick in. The problem, and by the way, the fatal problem, this technique 
is that the pH in your blood doesn't of, of your blood doesn't dip below the threshold required to release all of the oxygen stored in the myoglobin in your muscles. And so you feel absolutely great right up until the moment when you die or you black out. Now, if you black out on your bed, then that's one thing. <gasps> your body will take a breath. If you black out underwater, that's a whole different kettle of fish. So the number one thing to avoid in any kind of breath hold, free diving, apnea, exercise, is hyperventilation. It's a false friend. It makes you feel good, but it's, it's ultimately doesn't only reduce performance. It's actually incredibly dangerous. Now, with a couple of hours to spare and a little bit of instruction, anybody can hold their breath for three minutes, which is, for me, a kind of superpower. It's utterly amazing. And it's all about understanding what's happening, the mechanisms of what's happening, and having someone show you that the limits that you, that you felt were there are not there at all. This came home to me in a kind of second phase of freediving. I was, I was diving not regularly in competition, but I was um, occasionally competitively freediving. And I had a kind of limit. It's 50 meters, 150 feet. I've never gone deeper, by the way. And I think I was in Siracusa in, uh, in Sicily. And I met with the Italian champion. And he was diving at the time 85, 90 meters um, in... And this is just swimming down and swimming back. Uh, so, so no special weights or balloons. And he told me, look, there is no reason why you can't go deeper. The only thing that's stopping you is your own mental picture of what's possible. He called it a glass floor. And he said, you just have to blow through that glass floor. And actually, the only way of doing it is to forget the fact that you want to come back. So he said, his technique is not to think of the round trip, but to think of the one-way trip. and." He said, if you go down in a way that, you know, without thinking about coming back, then you will blow through that mental floor and it will open up a whole new world to you. Now, I was not willing to do that. I just had my first child and I have to admit that my mental picture, this serene picture sitting on a mountain as I got down past 30, 40 meters into the dark, my mental picture crumbled and I started visualizing my kids. And so um, clearly I was not mentally strong enough to, to get to a high level in that sport. But, you know, there are some things more important in life than, than freediving. By the way, a note on this. Freediving is, is an incredibly dangerous sport if you do it wrong. And there are a number of, you know, I doubt you're going to grab a mask and a snorkel and go out and try some of this in the sea. Just in case you do, I want to give you a couple of indicators. So the first one is never dive alone. This doesn't matter if you're diving with oxygen tanks or diving with air tanks, sorry, or, or, or free diving. You always need a buddy. Anything can happen when you're underwater. And that's especially the case when you're holding your breath. If you are alone, then your risk of death increases exponentially. If you're with a buddy, no matter what happens to you, if you're diving correctly, then you've got a helping hand and you've got a chance of getting out of it. So that's the number one advice. Number two advice is go and do a course like I did. They'll blow your mind. They'll show you what's possible, but they'll also teach you all the safety um, instructions, which are incredibly important. Now, this thirdly, I want to blow away what is probably another myth, and that is that depth kills. Actually, the most common uh, form of drowning during apnea is what's called shallow water blackout. And in order to understand why, you have to understand 
a little bit of what happens when you dive down. Actually, as you dive down and your lungs compress, what actually happens, you have to visualize this in order to understand it, what actually happens is that the molecules of oxygen zooming around inside your lungs get squished together, which makes them much more available to the um, oxygen scavenging mechanisms inside your lungs. Yeah? So big lungs, um, X number of molecules, difficult to find. Small lungs, those X number of molecules are squished together, far easier to find. So what happens is, as you, get, as you dive down, the oxygen in your lungs is actually more available. It's easier for your body to access it. And so maybe you're sitting at 20 meters depth. You're feeling okay. You're lucid. And you have enough oxygen for maybe another two minutes of free diving. Now just wind the clock forward a little bit. You begin to come up to the surface. Your lungs expand. By the way, they expand exponentially. And which means that as you're coming up the last 10 meters, your lungs are whoosh, blowing up like balloons. And those few molecules that are left inside your lungs, the ones that were tightly packed together and available um, to your body, are now dispersed within a much larger volume and actually harder to find. If that wasn't bad enough, it's entirely possible that the partial pressure, the concentration, let's say, of the oxygen in your lungs is now lower than the concentration of oxygen in your bloodstream. And be, there's nothing magic about the way our lungs work. It's just um, about concentration difference. And so oxygen normally flows from your lungs into your bloodstream where the oxygen is lower. But in this case, suddenly we've had a catastrophic drop in the concentration of oxygen in our lungs and you can get a reverse flow. So your lungs will actually suck oxygen out of your bloodstream. And as soon as that happens, you lose consciousness. This is called shallow water blackout. And it's a horrible phenomenon because you can be perfectly happy at 20 meters and you can be a dead man walking because you do not have enough oxygen to get back to the surface, even though that trip may only take you 20 seconds. So how do you avoid this? Well, first of all, always have a buddy. And if you ever watch any kind of freediving video on YouTube, you'll see that the freediver is allowed to go down to 50, 100, 150 meters on their own, make their way back up to 10 meters from the surface on their own, where they will be met by at least one other person, a buddy who is looking into their eyes, who is traveling up at the same speed as them, and who is ready at any point to grab hold of them if they lose consciousness and bring them to the surface. And because this because that journey through the last 10 meters only takes a few seconds, it's also quite common for that blackout to happen, not only in shallow water, so the last 10 meters, but also on the surface. So it's essential, there's a whole signaling protocol when a diver comes up. Um, the best thing to do is actually take off the mask um, and signal the OK sign to the body. This is done immediately after, it's called a hook breathing or a um, relatively aggressive series of breaths in order to reoxygenate the body, the okay sign, and then you're pretty sure that the blackout isn't going to occur. The other important thing is don't put yourself in a position where shallow water blackout is a possibility. And that's easier said than done, but the best way of, of ensuring that is, number one, don't dive when you're tired, don't push it too much, you know, don't try a string together a whole series of uh, um, competitive dives. Body is more affected by the apnea than you would imagine. So 
if you're doing something like uh, spearfishing, uh, breath hold spearfishing, then the recommendation is that you spend at least twice as long on the surface as you do underwater in order to ensure that your body has time to recover. But also, if you're looking to go deeper and deeper, then never go more than one meter, three feet deeper than your previous best dive. You know your body can handle that. Just push it one little meter further. And that means progress is going to be relatively slow, but it's also going to be safe. Now, I've blacked, I've never actually blacked out. Um, there's a there's a very strange phenomenon it's called, um, that happens just prior to blackout. And in, in freediving, it's called a samba because you dance. Um, it's your body's way of saying, help, I'm going to blackout. And you go into this kind of crazy samba-like dance and your eyes roll back in your head. And that's happened to me once during a breath hold in a swimming pool under strict competition ex- uh, um, conditions. The other time it happened was right at the beginning of freediving. And we were, you know, I went 15 meters, then 20, then 25, then, uh, uh, then 30. And I came up exhausted from that last dive and I went into a samba on the surface. Now, fortunately, my friend um, Paolo Acanti was there, my freediving instructor. And um, so he was able to bring me around. And that actually just requires a, that you blow on the face of the person and your body will instantly recognize that oxygen is available and will take a breath and you snap out of it. But um, if no one's there, then you just roll over face underwater and that's it. So following these one or two simple rules, it's a safe sport. If you don't, it can be a very dangerous one. Either way, it is utterly remarkable and mind-blowing what the body can achieve. And I don't mean Pelizzario Maiol or Mallorca. I mean what my body can achieve and what your body can achieve as soon as you know that it's possible. And that's really what, back to the beginning of the story, why I show these videos at the beginning of my digitalization sessions. As soon as the audience knows what's possible, suddenly a whole new world is open and the audience is receptive and we can explore whole new territories together without skepticism or having them shut down mentally. All right, so this was a weird one, digitalization and free diving. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll be back next time with more of the Ingenuity Podcast. (laughs) 